Well, you can probably guess where this is going because we've had a verse up on the screen this morning, right behind me, during the singing. But let me ask the question, what's better than life? What really is better than life itself? Let's be honest, from one angle, that question doesn't make sense, especially if we're not thinking Christianly or eternally. For what in our lives could possibly be enjoyed apart from life? Kids? No. Wife? Or husband? No. Possessions? Or success? Or fame? Learning? No. Without life, none of that can even be experienced. It it might make for good college-age poetry to your fiancé to say, I love you better than life itself. I'm sure I wrote that to my wife. I'm sure I wrote it more than once. But if we're honest, we know it doesn't make sense because life is the means by which I experience my wife. There's no experience with my wife apart from life. And yet King David in Psalm 63 says that there is something that's better than life. God. The only thing that's bigger than life, longer than life. He says specifically that it's God's covenant love that's better than life. It's a rich Hebrew word behind the steadfast love that's better than life in Psalm 63. I'd like to hit pause right now if I could. I won't, but to hit pause and have Dr. Ron Giese come up and give us a good Hebrew word lesson and even a good pronunciation lesson of the guttural at the beginning of this Hebrew word. So I'll butcher it. Chesed. Okay, chesed is this rich Hebrew word that means God's covenant love. It's translated as loving kindness in the New American Standard, which isn't a word we use, loving kindness. But you can see why they put those two words together into one kind of made-up English word. It's both love, God's feelings for us, and his goodness to us, love and kindness. The ESV translates it as his steadfast love, or what would mean his unchanging love, his fixed, unalterable love. But it's both mercy in this steadfast love and its communion. It's his love which forgives, but also his love which forgives and leads to fellowship and worship and intimacy. That's God's covenant, chesed, love. And it's better than life. It's better than life because it's unchanging. And because he's unchanging. It's better than life because it's in his presence that there's the fullness of joy And forever pleasures, according to Psalm 16. It's the one thing that transcends death. In fact, his love for those who are his is experienced more after death, not less. When all the props have been kicked out all around you, what's left? Every crutch is gone. Every temporary pleasure seems fragile or about to expire or snatched away even when those human hopes and earthly joys prove to be just what they are 
temporary, shadowy joys, not eternal, infinite, unchanging joys. What remains then? Does the best still remain? When all is shaken around you, does the reality become all the clearer? And if so, then does the foundation feel actually more sure? Have you ever sensed that in the midst of suffering? That somehow everything around you seems shaken, but the foundation upon which you stand seems more sure than ever because it's clear what you stand on and it's clear that it's not moving. Or maybe the foundation you stand on when all is shaken, feels shaken itself, and you begin to teeter and totter. Well, King David testified that God's steadfast love is better than life, and he did so at a time in his life when everything else was almost gone. Psalm 63 begins with David telling us that he wrote it, it says, look at the heading, when he was in the wilderness of Judah... Now, there are only two times in which David was in the wilderness of Judah, writing psalms. One was when he was on the run from King Saul. He wasn't yet king. Some psalms are written in that context. But there was another time when he was on the run from Absalom, his son. Then he was king. In Psalm 63, later on, verse 11 says that, The king will rejoice in God. He's clearly referring to himself there, even though it's third person. And so this psalm is written in that other, the second wilderness experience of David when he was king, but when he was exiled. And a whole army was against him, and that whole army was headed up by his son. It's a story we find in 2 Samuel 15 to 17 or so, somewhere in there is when David wrote Psalm 63. And hence, when he says in verse 9, just look down at that, of Psalm 63, that there are those who seek to destroy my life. You have to know that that's many people seeking to destroy his life. And it's not theory, it's real. And that these many real people seeking to destroy his life were led by his own flesh and blood. We've talked about this story before. Psalm 3 begins with a heading that points us back to the middle of 2 Samuel, to that similar story, but let me rehearse it just briefly again. Here's what happened in 2 Samuel that led to David being in the wilderness. There's this messy family feud, which I won't go into, but it's something too salacious even for the Jerry Springer show. And it's that debacle of a family mess that leads David's son, Absalom, to spend four years trying to set the stage for a coup, a coup to take out his dad and overtake his throne. So Absalom turns many in David's army against their commander, against their king. He lies about his dad. He just makes stuff up. He turns even some of David's closest allies against him. And then Absalom's army is set up in Hebron, a close-by city, and they get ready for battle. 
And that's when David hears of this. The whole thing catches David by surprise, and he's on his heels with an army about to march in Jerusalem. And so he feels the only thing to do is to flee Jerusalem with what's left of his army. They head into the wilderness, and they hide, they regroup, and they prepare for a battle out in the desert. While Absalom comes into Jerusalem and takes over the throne and even takes his father's wives as his own. 12,000 of Absalom's army are assigned with the special task of hunting down David. Now this is a war, right? These are armies against each other. So it's going to be a war, but these are like special forces. 12,000 special forces are assigned with an assassination. Take out David. So that's what it means when Psalm 63 begins, when David was in the wilderness of Judah. It looks so innocent at first. Oh, is this a camping trip? Was he in a dune buggy or on some dirt bikes or just getting some sun? Or what's he doing? Is he just traveling? No. He's on the run. And it doesn't get much worse than that. When you're on the run from your son, your son trying to take over the throne that God has given you and carved a path for you to receive. So before we get into Psalm 63, let's just establish this. Whatever you're going through right now, and you know your list, and you know what's top of the list or the top few on your list. David's story should help give some perspective. I don't in any way want to minimize whatever you're going through. But it's good at times to look at others' suffering and to find some comfort in their suffering because ours is not nearly as bad. No suffering is as bad as it can be. And chances are your suffering is not as bad as David's in the middle of 2 Samuel. You probably don't want to go tit for tat and toe to toe with David's crap list. Yours is not as big or bad. And that's one way of fighting depression and doubt in the midst of suffering. To read the suffering of the saints, both in scripture and the suffering of the saints in church history. To not only see the depths of their suffering and know that ours pales in comparison, but to also see how good their suffering is dealt with. How well they endure it. How godly they are in navigating it. It helps us gain perspective in our Suffering which seems to just consume us or blind us and disorient us helps us fight complaint and better count our blessings even in the midst of serious heartache. We often read the great stories of the Bible with the end of the story in view. So the story of Job, boy, it's a roller coaster, but you know where it goes, right? You know at the end, he gets three times more than he had at the beginning, and he knows God better for it. It's all good. So it's easy to read the story of Job with the end in mind. Chapter 1, chapter 2, you're into chapter 14. You still know it's going to turn out well. Job didn't know that. He wasn't an actor who had read the screenplay in advance and he knows how it's going to turn out. He's in the midst of it, just like when you're in the thick of it and you're suffering. The same with the story of Joseph in 
you know, being sold into slavery from his brothers. Yes, at the end, he's going to end up being second in command in the land and being the means by which his family survives a, a, a big famine. Great ending. Yeah, but all he has to do in the middle of the story is trust God when it doesn't look like it's going to come to pass what God's promised him. And it's the same with David here. God's given some promises, but the promises look, look bleak and he has to fight for faith. And trust. We also think that the great men of the Bible were somehow these super spiritual strengthened Christians. That they had this invisible Bible man cape. And, you know, it's the closest thing we, we really have in Christianity to superheroes. Angels are pretty good superheroes, but next is Bible writers. If they're in the Bible and they did something great in the Bible, then, boy, they're like Christian superheroes. Well, these were just guys. They weren't given extraordinary amounts of grace at every turn. And proof of that is David who, well, his flaws are as glaring sometimes as his fruit. So there's no way we can discredit David's passion and his God-centeredness in Psalm 63. And that's what we're going to see. An amazing God-centeredness and passion for God in the midst of horrible circumstances It's not that he writes Psalm 63 and it's almost cloud nine intimacy with Yahweh God from the palatial quarters of Jerusalem and the experience of luxury and ease and women draping grapes down into his mouth as another man fans him with a giant feather. That's not when he wrote Psalm 63. He wrote it in the wilderness. He wrote it when life was on the brink. All of it. Well, all of it except for one thing. God. Here's what it says. My favorite psalm, by the way. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night, for you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I'll sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Well, there are all kinds of intertwined themes in this psalm. It's hard to unravel it. But I do think there's some distinguishable sections. There is something of a flow. I think there are four main sections here. The first... 
is that David shows us how to seek God desperately. David shows us to seek him desperately. And it's founded upon a relationship. It's right there in verse 1 at the beginning. Oh God, you are my God. Remember the Shema we talked about last week from Deuteronomy 6. The Lord your God is one. The Lord is your God. Here David puts it in very personal, intimate terms. It's not just about God that it's true, but he says it to God. He says it in first person. Oh God, you are my God. In this personal, intimate note that this song begins with rings out all the way through. Because he's my God, I'll seek him earnestly, he says in verse 1. Seek him earnestly. Now, some of your translations might have, I will seek him early, or early will I seek him. Which one is it, early or earnestly? Well, the Hebrew word here for seeking earnestly or early is a verb for dawn. So dawn is a noun, right? It's the sunrise. But imagine a verb of that. And it's used in this word picture here of seeking God. So some have translated that and interpreted that as seeking God early, like when the sun rises. And others have interpreted it as seeking God earnestly, like the sun coming up off the edge of the horizon. I mean, it doesn't come up um, secretly. It's not shy, right? As soon as it's peeking over, it's bursting forth. It's earnest. Well, I think it's actually both of these. I think it's sort of a pun. I think Seeking him earnestly means seeking him whenever you can, all through the day, not just in the morning, but not least in the morning. Right? If you're seeking him earnestly, your thoughts will be on him at night. Your thoughts will be on him in the day. And your thoughts will be on him when you awake. Seek him sincerely. Seek him frequently. And yes, seek him even early. He seeks the Lord like this because he thirsts for the Lord. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is like Psalm 42, isn't it? Though that's written by someone else. Remember that began with, as the deer pants for the water brook, So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Like a deer looking for water and it can't get to it. So David says in Psalm 63, I feel like I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And get this, he probably was in the desert in a dry and weary land and maybe he's out of water. Maybe he actually is physically parched. Maybe he's desperate for water. Maybe he's nervous about how he's going to get to water. But that's not his main concern if he's parched, physically thirsty. It's a reminder of something else. This long, a long analogy used all throughout scripture that God is water and we thirst for him. So David says, I thirst for God. My flesh faints. Maybe his body was about to faint. But it reminds him that he faints for God. 
He's desperate for God. There's a greater thirst than the literal one or physical one of his mouth. He needs one quenched in his soul. And so he recalls, notice it's past tense, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, verse 2 says, to behold your power and your glory. Now this could be a reflection back of his time in Jerusalem, time of corporate worship in the sanctuary, or it could be a vision that he had while he was out in the desert. Because this word for looked upon you isn't a typical word for looking, it's It's often used for what prophets get. They get a vision. A prophet gets a vision. So a vision comes to Isaiah. A vision comes to to Micah. And this unusual Hebrew word is used. It's the one David uses here. So it could be a vision. Or it could just be a recollection of past experience in Jerusalem. But it doesn't matter because what he's after is the same. He's longing to behold God's power and God's glory and God's power and his glory in the temple or in the sanctuary, in the holy city. Isn't it amazing that he talks about God's glory and his power in the sanctuary when he could be praying for God's glory and God's power to show up on the battlefield? He'd have a vested interest in in praying for God to show up in might and glory to give him victory. And at times he prays like that. Psalm 3 is one of those. Later on, he actually does pray something like that or at least express his faith in something like that. But, but here, earlier in Psalm 63, it shows us that his real longing isn't for God's power and his glory merely for David's benefit or the nation's benefit, but for personal intimacy, for tasting and seeing the Lord is good. Like David said in Psalm 27, verse 4, remember that one thing? One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that's what I'll seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That I might gaze in the beauty of the Lord, and I might inquire in his temple. A threefold one thing. That's my one desire, my heartbeat, my banner, my longing, my vision statement. I want the Lord, I want his presence. I want to see him with the eyes of faith. Such singularity of focus for God's presence. And that's why he wants to return to Jerusalem. Having looked upon him in the sanctuary, beholding his power and his glory, no doubt he wants to return, but not just return to fix the problem with Absalom, not just solve the civil war. He wants to return to Jerusalem, I think, first and foremost, because that's where God is, at least in the Old Covenant. Yes, he's everywhere, but God reveals himself in certain times, in certain places, in certain ways, Specially. So, in the Old Covenant, that meant the tabernacle, the temple, the holy city, Jerusalem. In the New Covenant, that means the temple is us. He dwells within our hearts. And the temple is even more of a temple when the little temples come together, says First Peter 2. When we come together like this, it makes up sort of a bigger temple. You know how transformers can stand on other transformers and become a giant transformer? That kind of happened here this morning. Right now, it's happening, spiritually speaking. 
Little temples get together and they become a greater temple for more of God's presence and power and glory in their midst. Oh, I know sometimes it just feels very human, very earthly and average. The singing stinks and, you know, too many people are yawning and you yourself are bored and you just can't help but think of getting taxes done or something like that. It all feels very earthly and temporary and simple, maybe even not helpful, but that's where we trust his promises to be true, that he does meet with us. It's the slowness of our fallen souls that we can't grasp it even when it's there, when he's here. But it's not just in our corporate worship that he's with us specially. It's also the Bible, right? We behold him not by looking at stained glass. We don't behold him by going and looking at great majestic nature scenes, although there's something about that that shows his glory. But really, we get much glory when we go to behold him in his word. We behold Jesus as through the mirror of the word of God. So Bible and prayer and Bible and prayer in corporate worship is where we go to see him. David knows that principle, and that's why he seeks God in the sanctuary to behold his power and his glory because it's his God. He wants to seek him earnestly and early. He wants to express his thirst for God like panting. He wants to find that water and be satisfied. Seek him desperately. Secondly, he says, praise him joyfully. Praise God joyfully. He says in verse 3, God's steadfast love is better than life. It's the greatest of all. It's what we need. It's the only thing that will remain when everything is gone. And it's who he is. God is love. Exodus 34, it's a great story of God telling that he's love. Moses asked to see God's glory. Moses asked a very bold thing, but God is merciful, and God didn't just backhand him to the side of Saturn for asking something so bold. Can I show, you know, can I see your glory? The Lord gave him a bit of his glory. The Lord tucked him in the cleft of the rock, you know, and he covered up Moses' face, and then he passed by, but only as the tail end of his glory passed by did he uncover Moses' face just a bit. And as he passed by, he shouted something. Did you know that? He said this. The Lord, the Lord. God says this. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. In sin, the Lord, the Lord, he is the God of chesed, love, covenant love, steadfast love, faithful, unchanging love. And because he is that God of love, David says, my lips will praise you. The end of verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. Bless you sounds, I don't know, very religious, maybe even mystical. What is it to bless the Lord? Well, it's to ascribe to him. It's to 
say who he is back to him with joy and with unction, conviction and fervor. Lips praising him, blessing him in your soul as long as you live. That is what God made us to do. That's what he commands us to do. That's what Jesus saved us to do. And it's not just inner, and it's not just at the lips, but it's also in other parts of the body. So he says in verse 4, To your name I will lift up my hands. Lift up my hands. An inner expression of the heart that needs to be released and expressed in an outward way. Now, yes, I know there are some people who raise their hand to God during singing, and there's nothing going on in the heart. This by itself isn't worship. This could be, beam me up, Scotty, or yes, I have a question right here. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Hand raised means nothing unless it's from a heart that wants to laud God and show forth his greatness and to express that he's up there and we're down here. There's a transcendence about our relationship. It is almost like a a bowing of sorts. Think of raising hands to God in worship as a standing bowing. Now, bowing is also in the Psalms. We don't see it too much here on a Sunday morning, but perhaps sometimes you're moved in your prayer closet enough or it wouldn't be an appropriate thing to find an aisle here and fall to your knees to express his greatness and our humility that we want to laud him, we want to exalt him. It's all over the Psalms. Clapping is part of this. There's some, you, you need to do something. I hope you feel that when we sing, when your heart's moved with truth. I hope you get louder, and I hope you get antsy. It's in the Bible. Raising hands is all over the Psalms. Bowing is too. So is clapping. It's in other parts of the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament, this thing of raising hands. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire that in Every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. Paul wanted this. And Sam Storms does a good job of telling us why it's a good thing to lift hands. It signifies surrender to a higher authority. It, it, it signals utter vulnerability. It shows utter dependence on God for everything. It shows that one who will happily and expectantly receive a gift from another. It shows neediness. It's like saying, go ahead, give it to me. It shows an aspiration to direct attention away from ourselves and to the Savior. It's an expression of tenderly and intimately saying, Abba, Father. So don't be shy to raise your hand in worship or hands or to clap or to bow, especially as it springs from the heart, especially as it's an expression of being satisfied with him. David says, my soul will be satisfied with what? With fat and rich food. 
Now, some of you like to finish your steak, grizzle and all, especially when your wife isn't looking, right? Some of you would vomit to see someone eat the fat on the edge of a steak. The second group, can you just imagine for a second that you're the first group? I know you really can't. I know it's almost impossible. You'd rather eat an ashtray than... (laughs) than eat fat on the end of a steak. But, but just imagine you're in a not-so-health-conscious age, David's age, and marrow in fatness, that's what it literally means, is the richest, it's the most fattening, which wouldn't have been a bad thing if you're trying to survive, and it's the most filling kind of food. It's the food of kings. Kings have gravy for beverages and... You know, they eat butter, like straight butter. That's the food of kings, except when they're on the run in the middle of the desert. And so maybe David's rations reminds him of the the palace buffet and the fat, the fattening food, the filling food, the rich food. And it reminds him, not of that place so that he wants to go back and eat that food, but it reminds him to look up to God and say, my soul is satisfied in God like that, as with the richest of foods. He's my Thanksgiving dinner. He's my feast. I'm full. I'm satisfied. I'm smiling. And yet, paradoxically, remember how it began? The psalm began with him saying, I'm thirsty. I'm about to faint. I'm in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Contradiction? No. Christian life, now and not yet, right? We're satisfied and yet restless for more. There's tension. There's paradox. But satisfied and restless for more, we're led to praise him. He says in verse 5, I'll praise you with mouth. I'll praise you with lips, vocally. It's got to get out there. And this isn't quiet or private praise. This is public, loud praise. I'll praise you with joyful lips, he says. So it's not just praising him with singing or saying. And it's not just praising him with hands uplifted. But it has to get all the way to hearts happy. I'll praise you with joyful lips. So think about this as far as our singing goes. That's the goal. Joyful lips. That's what we're after. And we have to resolve that we'll pursue his worship like that. You see so much resolve in Psalm 63. Verse 3, I will. Verse 4, I will. You see, my soul will. My mouth will. That's resolve. That's not being cocky. He's not predicting the future. He's telling himself. He's preaching to himself. Resolve. I will praise him. I will sing of him. I will raise my hands in his name. Praise him joyfully. That's what we were made to do. Third, meditate on him thoroughly. Meditate on him thoroughly. He says in verse 6, I remember you, and basically the same word, I meditate on you. Remember and meditate. 
Remembering and meditating together tells us that meditation in the Bible is not what Eastern meditation is. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Bible's meditation isn't thoughtlessness, it's thoughtfulness, it's cognition, it's synapses firing in a holy way. It's taking God's truth into our brain, it's chewing on that truth, then digesting it, and dare we say, also regurgitating it. Bear with me. We ponder God's truth. We apply God's truth. And we send God's truth back to him verbally in praise and prayer and song. We talk to God about it. That's what worship is. I'd really encourage you to do a a word search of the word meditate in the Psalms and see different ways it's used and the way they chew on God's truth. In Psalm 63, worship and meditation look backwards to the past. Remember, some verses say, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Some verses are put in the present tense and some of them are in the future. I will, I will, I will. Meditation, looking back, looking down, looking at Bible, looking ahead. Meditation at all times, especially in moments of weakness like nighttime. He says in verse 6, I meditate on my bed. I remember in the watches of the night. There's something unique about this assignment of sleep. Forced quietness, forced darkness, forced stillness, especially if you're sleeping next to your spouse. You don't want to aggravate them flipping and flopping. So after a busy day, this might be the first time that you've actually proactively thought about anything. It seems like so much of our thinking in this busy age is forced upon us, we react to it. Forced upon us, we react to it. Sometimes my only proactive thinking in a day is when I'm reading my Bible quietly or laying down and trying to go to sleep. And sometimes then you can't stop thinking. Or other times you fall asleep and then you wake up in the middle of the night and you're thinking. You can't go back to sleep. Well, apparently David was in this boat of sleeplessness And understandably so under the circumstances, right? On the run, his son against him, 23,000 ready to kill him. So what does he do when he's sleepless? When he's up in the night, he meditates. He remembers the Lord, which clearly is describing a fight of the soul, a fight against despair, a fight against doubt. The reason he's up is... This is hard. His mind just keeps spinning. Perhaps he's fighting off. What ifs, what ifs, what if? He remembers. He meditates. Maybe you're in that same boat of not sleeping well, and maybe maybe much of your sleeplessness springs from worry. If so, follow David's lead. Pray, meditate, rest your soul in him in the middle of the night. Meditate by recognizing his support. You have been my help. 
I'm under the shadow of your wings, he says in verse 7. He says, your right hand upholds me, he says in verse 8. And then this again leads to praise. There have been several cycles of praise in this psalm, and here comes another, remembering, meditating, which leads to singing for joy at the end of verse 7. And you notice it says, sing for joy. That's peculiar, isn't it? Is it sing for joy we're supposed to do, or do we sing because of joy? Well, think of all the different components that are going on here in Psalm 63, parts of the Christian life that we see in Psalm 63. You could put it like this. There's longing, there's pursuing, there's beholding, which is worshiping, and that's also Bible, that's thinking, and there's cherishing. And part of cherishing means also rejoicing, right? So you might want to think of these, yes, as a progression in a line. You know, longing leads to pursuing. Pursuing leads to beholding. Beholding leads to cherishing. Cherishing leads to to rejoicing. And this whole thing is what we call praise and worship. But it might be easier or better to think of it in a circle, where each one feeds into the other, and it doesn't hit a dead end where you say, there, done, all right, now what? Uh, I guess I go back to the beginning, or wait until tomorrow morning, or Sunday morning. No. The Christian life is this cycle of longing for him, and pursuing him, and beholding him, cherishing him. The more we cherish him, the more we long for him. And you don't have to just begin in one place. You shouldn't wait for longing to start beholding. You shouldn't wait for beholding to start praising. It's kind of a a soup, isn't it? There's a logical flow, and yet they're all kind of mixed in together. And you can start in any place and get get the, the, the peas spinning around. And the more you do it, the more it grows. Longing into more pursuing, beholding, into more cherishing, cherishing into more longing. Oh, it's not always the case that this goes this nice, smooth slope of growth, but the Christian life, generally speaking, is ups and downs along these lines of these desires and aims feeding into one another. Think about the whole. Don't forget about the whole. Each feeds into another. They grow together. And so we need Bible. We need Bible even when we don't feel like it, even when we're not longing for him, and we need to sing for joy like Psalm 63 says. Sometimes you sing because of your joy in him, and sometimes you sing to get joy in him. And that cling, clinging to him is no doubt a beautiful word picture of a result that comes from praising him and experiencing his presence. My soul clings to you, David says, like a toddler who clings to a dad's leg as he's trying to leave for work. A little toddler doing their best koala bear imitation, wrapping every limb around your leg, determined to either keep you in the house or to be part of your leg as you walk out to the car. That is a wonderful, glorious thing. 
I would adopt kids just for that, to keep that going. (laughs) And that's what we're supposed to do to the Lord. We're supposed to hold on to him like that, determined like that, even stubborn like that, to have more of him, more of his love and more of his fellowship. It's amazing how intimate all this is, isn't it? And lastly, we trust him completely. Seek him desperately, praise him joyfully, meditate thoroughly, and trust him completely. And we won't spend much time on these last three verses. We've seen these kinds of things, psalms of judgment before. I really think the point of these verses, like verses 9 and 10, those who seek to destroy my life shall go into the depths of the earth. Point is, trust. David's trusting God's plan, God's Final justice, David's acknowledging that there'll be a final reckoning, even if injustices are going on right now. And you don't get a worse injustice than your son starting a civil war and trying to take the throne that God gave you. You don't get a greater injustice than that. But he trusts God for final justice. He trusts God in his work. And he says, the king will rejoice in God This is all very lofty, and I feel so very inadequate talking about it. Do you? Who does Psalm 63? One answer is David did. I think it was genuine as he wrote it. But another answer is no one did. No one has. I mean, even David had inconsistencies. He didn't live on cloud nine Even Psalm 63, which is about as cloud nine as it gets, there's fight within it, there's tension, there's paradox in it. Only Jesus was perfectly satisfied and unchangingly satisfied with the Father's love. No one but Jesus. And Jesus was our righteousness, which means he was obedient on our behalf, He was even exultant on our behalf. He was everything that God called us to be and more, including loving and sacrificially loving. So he laid down his life for ours. So proof that God's chesed love is better than life is Jesus giving his life for that covenant love. You want to know that God's love is better than life Look to Jesus where it's shown to be greater than life. Shown in the cross where he won our forgiveness and bought us all the gifts that come with being one of his sons. Conquering sin and giving us this covenant love. The one thing we cannot live without. Everything else you can live without. Do you realize the freedom if we bought into that? Everything else you can live without because God's people have. You name it. I'll give you a story from the Bible or church history where someone didn't have that and they proved that God's loving kindness is better than life. Jesus is the water that wells up to eternal life. He was the reason that Job could say, even if he slay me, yet I'll hope in him. 
He's ultimately what David meant when he said, taste and see that the Lord is good and delight yourself in the Lord. It's the basis for what Paul said in Romans 8 that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Martin Luther saying, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. C.S. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slums because they cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And our friend and neighbor, Fernando Ortega, sings in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. When I'm alone, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus.